News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Right now, though, we are checking in with our Raji Sohal. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. Now, um, we're going to be talking about the residential school story today. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you, do you feel the same frustration that I do, where it seems like the last couple of days, we've heard a lot of politicians talking, 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 but I would like to see some concrete action. They're talking a lot, and I've noticed the tone has changed. Um, you know, Prime Minister Prime Minister Justin Trudeau started out uh, a few days ago by saying, you know, this is something that happened in our past, and focusing on that, it was in the past, whereas now he's starting to admit that the legacy exists very strongly today. And Simi, where I'm getting a lot of my information now is wading through Twitter and actually just reading directly what Indigenous people, people who had family members who were in residential schools, what they're saying. And I think it's an important time that we actually turn the lens to Indigenous voices and look to them to see what they have to say about their community. And they are mourning. And you know what I'm seeing? I'm seeing that people are not surprised, right? We yes, keep hearing of course, yeah. from people who are Indigenous that they are not surprised, they are not shocked. And then I'm also reading um, that people who live in Kamloops who are not Indigenous also have had a lingering idea that this was the case, that there were um, unmarked burials uh, near the residential Really? School. And I'm seeing that a lot on Twitter and a lot of people, you know, sharing accounts of, oh, my dad mentioned something about that, but it was very quiet. It was very hushed. And so I think it's just a time right now where all of us are waking up a little bit more, a little bit more and a lot of anger. But I think we're still in that phase of mourning. Yeah, that's a good point, too. Like you can understand how there must have been discussion in the community about this. Uh, and For you know, sure there always is, yeah, right? getting and and I know that many of the First Nations bands, particularly the one in Kamloops, they would like some time to grieve. They said, right? They don't want to be, um, you know, doing a lot of interviews right now. They don't. They need some time to kind of regroup and think about this and just mourn amongst themselves. Totally understandable. Absolutely. And then everyone keeps saying, okay, like, let's, let's move to action soon from our politicians. But then we have the politicians saying, let's move to action without actually doing anything. They're just having, you know, a lot more meetings. And we had a very significant Truth and Reconciliation Commission filled with calls to action, many of which have not been None of which. Yeah. Like, yeah. So, you know, we can talk all day about hypotheticals about what we need to do, but if we're not going to do it, then how does that make us a better, a better country, a better province? How are we, how are we going to heal without actually moving forward with those actions? This is the thing that struck me too in reading about this story and that we've got all these recommendations from these commissions and inquiries that we've done and none of them have been acted upon. And I thought, well, that's shocking then. Yeah. And then people are now calling for like, let's think more radically. Let's think about what we can actually do to show that we care. And some of those hypotheticals are, you know, that land, any land really where there has been a residential school, turn it over, give it back yeah. to the indigenous people. And then also people are saying, I've been seeing a lot of this, hundreds of tweets about ending logging on unceded land. Or are we going to just pay lip service to this? Or do we want to do something substantial and change the province's name? 
And a lot of indigenous folks are saying that, uh, you know, settlers, which, you know, I include myself among them, um, are not waking up enough. You know, mm. that this is, this hasn't been a major wake, wake up call that has yet to come because if it was a real wake up call, people would be changing their lives today around what we have learned. I think a lot of introspection is going on right now. Oh, too, I think so too. Yeah. Yeah. Like what can I do myself um, to make it better for my indigenous brothers and sisters on whose land I am a guest? You know, we were talking, you'd mentioned forestry there, which I think is interesting because that was part of the big announcement yesterday from yeah. Premier John Horgan and the government about uh, turning over more of the forestry tenure licenses uh, two different First Nations. We are going to be talking to the forest minister about that because that was in the works, you know, for a mm-hmm. long time before all of this kind of came up. So, yeah, there's a lot still to talk about here. So, Raji, we're going to get to it. We'll talk to you a little bit later in the show. Thanks, Simi. Thank you. Coming up next, we're also going to be talking about the issue of vaccine mixing. I said this before. I'm going to say it again. If you are over the age of 70 and you received your vaccine before April the 6th, so you were not you know, part of the provincial registration system, maybe you registered with your health authority, you still need to register province-wide. Uh, the government said yesterday only 45% of people in that age group have done that, have done the provincial registration, so you, you have to do it. They're going to be sending a letter to you to remind you to do it because that's how you're going to get the notification for the second shot, and the second shot is coming up. So please make sure you are registered. You can't register twice, so even if you go on there and you think, oh, I don't know if I did this the first time, Go through the process. It'll tell you if you're already registered. So you can never be too sure in this kind of case. This is Mornings with Simi. BC is expected to make it official tomorrow, but the National Advisory Committee on Immunizations in Canada has already made it public. NACI supports the idea of mixing vaccines. That is, someone who received AstraZeneca for their first shot can receive, and they're discretionally recommending this, uh, can receive Pfizer or Moderna for their second. But the same recommendation doesn't hold for the other way around. If you received an mRNA vaccine for your first shot, then that, they said, is what you should receive for your second. So what does all that mean? Joining us now for more on this is Amir Adaran, who's a professor of law and medicine at the University of Ottawa. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. So what did you think with that NACI recommendation? Is it time for that? I don't like it. I'm very, I'm very uneasy with it. And here's why. There is absolutely no data, and I mean no data, nothing, comparing the protective efficacy of mixing doses and matching doses. We just don't know whether mixing works better than matching, worse than matching, or what have you. And you can make a scientific argument either way, because you don't have data, so you just have to do it out of plain old guessing, inference. You can build a reasonable inferential argument either way, that mixing would be better or worse than matching. There's so much uncertainty into it that I really don't feel the decision is a good one. So when you say there's no data, we've seen these studies, but that's just preliminary. Do you think it's too preliminary? Well, no, actually, there's no data. None. I I mean, what they're 
ought to be are data showing that by mixing, you gain more or less protection than by matching. And that protective efficacy study of mixing versus matching just has not been done. So what has been done? done. It has not. It has not. It needs to be done. What has been done are limited studies about the levels of antibodies that are measured mixing and matching or the, the adverse reactions mixing and matching. That's not the same as protective efficacy. How effective is it at protecting you from COVID? That's the big question. Right. Uh, Amir, maybe you could adverse reaction. Yeah, maybe you could explain for us then the difference between what you're talking about uh, protection versus antibodies. That's right. So antibodies are molecules that circulate in your body. They're somewhat correlated with the degree of protection that you get from the disease. But having a lot of antibodies or having a little antibodies, while somewhat predictive, is not an actual replacement for protective efficacy. Why? Because the immune system works with things other than antibodies. That's just one branch of it. If you want to know whether mixing and matching compare favorably or not, you have to measure protective efficacy. And that's not been done. So does that take longer? Are we in the process? Let me me correct myself. Let me correct myself. For matched vaccines, that's been done. And we know that the protective efficacy can be very high, well over 90% if you match vaccines. Do we know that for mixing? No, we don't. Are we in the process of doing that? There are studies underway, but they haven't reported their results yet. And what's being done here in Canada is to embark on an experiment before the results of the studies are in. I think that's the wrong thing to do. And so do most countries in the world. NASI admitted that the majority of countries do not recommend mixing vaccines. Canada is one of a few outliers that way. I don't think we should be. You know, I mean, there will be people who are prepared to mix the vaccines, fine. If that's what you want to do, go ahead and do it. The option is available to you. But what I can say is I'm a cautious person. If it were my arm getting the needle, I would want my vaccines to be matched, not mixed. So, I mean, we're mainly talking about people here who got the AstraZeneca vaccine first, right? So, because that's what they discretionally recommended. So is that something you think that if you got the AstraZeneca AstraZeneca vaccine, you should wait and have AstraZeneca? That would be my choice if I got AstraZeneca. Now, I didn't as as it happens, but if I had, I would be banging the drum saying, I want my second dose to be AstraZeneca too. Let me clarify one thing. I don't have the same concern when it comes to Pfizer and Moderna. If you got a Pfizer dose and your second dose is Moderna or vice versa, you got a Moderna dose, then you're offered Pfizer for the second round. That does not worry me because those vaccines have an identical antigen in them. Okay. Not true with AstraZeneca. The antigen is subtly different than it is from Pfizer and Moderna. 
So it's, it's that mixing of AstraZeneca first plus something else second. It's that particular mixing that I feel is premature and that we should have data for before going down that road. Do we know when data would be available on that? No, you know, and, and that's really in the hands of the researchers. And it, would, it would hopefully be available within the next several weeks or a couple months, but, you know, the right. researchers control that. We'll see what happens. We'll have to talk to you again about this. Amir, thank you for your time this morning. You're welcome. Have a good day. You too. That's Amir Adaran, who's a professor of law and medicine at the University of Ottawa. Not happy with the idea of mixing vaccines if you got the AstraZeneca first, as you heard there. This is Mornings with Simi. Hey, when was the last time you saw your wedding gown? Do you even know where it is? Pretty sure mine's in the garage somewhere. Uh, which brings us to our story today that we're going to talk about with Raji Sohal. Right, Raji? Where's your wedding dress? It's actually in a box in Colorado. See? It's at your parents' <laughs> house, isn't it? It's at my in-laws' house. Oh, there you go. And you know, I had every intention of pulling that thing out regularly and wearing it again because mine was like not overly fancy, but I have left it in this precious box in another country for years. <laughs> well, I have no idea why I kept mine because, I mean, mine was very circa 1993. That ain't Sweet. ever coming back into fashion, quite frankly. No, that's so, in right now. No, in. it's not. <laughs> it's hideous. So I don't think it's ever going to be worn again. <laughs> but that brings us to our topic today. So Boris Johnson, Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, just got married this week in a hush-hush top-secret wedding, but it's really his bride's wedding dress that is, seems to be making all the news. Yes, because uh, he married Carrie Simmons, and she rented her dress. Yes, a rental gown. So she returned it after wearing it. And it was an expensive dress originally. It was uh, more than five about 5,000 hour money. And uh, she would have rented it, though, for only about $100 hour money. Hmm. Okay. I think that's a very thrifty thing to do, don't you? It's bold because people were waiting to see what she'd wear, which designer it would be, and like, is it something that, you know, would have some kind of controversy, but not this, not like she wore a rental. She wore something that other brides have worn and she gave it back. I was really blown away that she did that and I admire it, but I don't know if I would have done the same. Oh, I admire it too. I mean, I think we the problem is that we've all been indoctrinated by shows like Say Yes to the Dress and, you know, where you're going to go out and spend way more than you, you're going to blow the budget on a dress that you're going to wear for a couple of hours. Like, why do that? Yeah. And Simi, people like make such a big deal of it now that they get custom stuff made in other countries. They visit those countries. They do multiple fittings. And yeah, like you said, it's a couple of hours and literally like it just sits in the garage afterwards. I went to a wedding um, ooh, three years ago now where the bride had four outfit changes oh, wow. and each one of them was a beautiful rented outfit, whether it was a ball gown or a wedding dress. And I was, I thought this is amazing. And when I asked, I'm like, how can she keep doing this? And it turns out they were rented. And I thought at the time, brilliant. Yeah, that's super fun. I wish I had even known or thought about that because what I did was go kind of in between. I got a dress that I thought, hey, this is casual enough that I can wear it again, but it 
It's not. First no, because it's like, your wedding you, dress. You're not going to go yeah. to another wedding wearing, oh, yeah, I no. actually wore this to my wedding. Like, no. Well, you shouldn't. You could, but you shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, you should. Then you're going to end up on a different website for doing something like that. There you go. Well, you know, when I used to work in TV in Montreal, um, I actually wore dresses once and gave them back to the designers. Um and what a lot job of people, did you have in Montreal? What was this? <laughs> well, a lot of my friends happened to make clothes. Um, and so that made me start thinking about it differently because if you're only wearing something so briefly, like, do we really need to rack up our closets as, as full as possible? And, you know, you and I have been talking about this term chuggy lately, <laughs> which uh, is about, you know, identifying with people who are a little too basic, a little too predictable and uh, chasing trends. Well, now they say like one of the tenets of not being chuggy is to be into secondhand clothes, like to actually be into them. Don't show off about spending a lot on clothes because it's not cool anymore. It's cooler to get things that you can keep in rotation, share with other people, do swaps once you're done with some of your clothes, pass them on to a friend. Yeah, and fast uh, fashion, I think, is is definitely done for now. I think so. I think the pandemic has shown us uh, to just like, you know, look at our priorities around fashion a little bit differently. But what's so cool about Carrie Simmons having done this is it was like super high profile. And um, I think that people now will be looking at the possibility of renting, if not just for renting gowns for weddings, but, you know, for other things like you have another kind of fancy event as we all intend to eventually hope to get around to doing that uh, once this pandemic is over um, that you might rent. Hmm. I'd have to think about that. You would do it? Yeah, 100%. Okay. This this really convinced me. Yeah. All right. I'll have to ask people about that. Like if, if somebody were getting married out there, would you rent your wedding dress? Would you go that route instead of spending all the money on it? Um, Raji, thank you. You can email me, simmy at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. As we've been talking about this morning, we heard about a big announcement from Premier John Horgan and his government yesterday dealing with our forestry industry. So what the government is doing is they're planning on overhauling the forestry sector with a focus on getting First Nations more access to forest tenures. The goal is to double the amount of tenures held by First Nations. Right now, about 10% of allowable cut is in the hands of Indigenous communities. What does all that mean, though? How is this going to change the industry here in BC? For more on these latest developments, we're joined now by Katrine Conroy, who's the Minister of Forests, Lands, Natural Resource Operations, and Rural Development. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Jimmy. Can you give us an idea of what this process was like? Like, what went into this announcement yesterday? Oh, well, this was years of work, <laughs> excuse me, Simi, that uh, started under my predecessor, Doug Donaldson, the former minister. And, and uh, what, there was a number of, of consultations that took place with the, the coastal forest industry, the interior forest industry. Of course, there was consultation on changes to the Forest and Range Practices Act. And, and then, of course, when the government commissioned the old growth report, uh, the strategic review on old growth, that was very much a part of this. And we put that all together and, and recognized that, you know, we need to move forward. We need to bring... You know, it's a vision for the forestry sector, but to bring the forestry sector into the 21st century. And so got all that information and moving forward with it and was able to announce it all today, yesterday. Yeah, so can you explain then to people what will be different about our forest industry moving forward? 
guiding principles that we're looking at. You know, we're, we're looking at increasing forest sector participation. We're looking at enhancing stewardship and sustainability and strengthening the social contract. And with it, in each of these three guidelines, there's uh, 20 intentions. And those intentions will, will do things like increase the participation of, of people in the forestry sector so that we can be looking at more value-added producers that can access more tenure. Um, and again, as you had said, the, the critically important um, increasing the accessibility of the forest industry to the Indigenous nations in this province. I mean, that's part of what DRIPO is all about, our Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. It's reconciliation and action that we are going to ensure that uh, that the Indigenous people on whose traditional territory the, the forest lands are, you know, have the right to, to good stewardship and, and to manage those lands as they see fit. So does that change supply? Does that change processing? And, and what about the companies who perhaps have some of those tenures? Well, it's interesting because right now we, we are, you know, we have less tenure in this province, you know, with, because of climate change, because of wildfires, beetle kill, all the, the bug diseases. So we'll have the same amount of tenure, but we have to look at how we can utilize it better. And some of the companies have, have already started. I mean, the, the premier put this challenge out to companies a few years ago and said to them, you know, you need to start working with Indigenous nations. And some companies have already started doing that. And what it'll mean, I mean, we just did an apportionment decision as Prince George and the Carrius County nations now have um, substantially more uh, tenure than they used to have. And then the companies will work with the nations to access the tenure. And, you know, it's, it's, I think it's going to be a, a beneficial move in the right direction for the province, and, and companies recognize that. And, and as I said, many companies have already started that work. Is that something along the lines of what we see happening in Ferry Creek, though? We know that the local Indigenous community there uh, wants to see, you know, wants to have a say in that land. They do have a say in what happens to the land up there. They do, and they've been working on a landscape plan. They've been working on stewardship for a number of years, and and they they want to ensure that you know that it's their territory, and they want to make sure that that that's recognized, and and that's why you know, you know we need to do this complete overhaul to make sure that. You know they do have a say, and and the Pachidad have, have said they they want to manage their land, and you know that's what we're doing. You know because we need to respect that. We need to, you know, we need to step back and say yes. We need to listen to the rights and title holders of the land. You know we need to listen to what direction they want to go in. And as I said, we are we all in the house. Everyone in the house affirmed that when we passed the Declaration Act, and and that's. You know, that's a, a good direction to go in. So what are you hearing from forestry companies then? You said some of them have already taken these steps. How is this going mm-hmm. to work for them? Well, it's, uh, for different forest companies, you know, we're getting different reactions. The, the people that the companies that have moved into value added, for instance, are, are very excited about the opportunities to access more tenure. You know, some really successful companies that don't have tenure, and the thought that they might be able to access more tenure has made them, you know, very excited. You know, smaller companies. Um, we're also moving into value added, uh, such as mass timber. Um, more companies are are going into the the mass timber production and and being able to utilize timber like hemlock, which isn't that uh, isn't utilized really in, in dimensional lumber, you know, when you're making two by fours or two by sixes, things like that to construct homes. Um, hemlock's really hard, but it, it's great for mass timber. So here's a way of utilizing a, a, a wood that a fiber that hasn't been utilized before and and mass timber is it, you know it's pretty incredible it's uh it's been around for for years in fact um our mass timber advisory committee told us that they feel that bc was the birthplace of mass timber back in 2010 and and 
we, we need to move on it. So we've got 10 pilot projects going, showing how mass timber can be utilized in, in large buildings. And it'll be really exciting to see those buildings start to sprout up across the province. Now, what is the timeline for these changes? I know there's more work to be done. This was an intentions paper announced yesterday, but what is the timeline? Yes. So, so it's going to take a few years. This isn't going to happen overnight. I mean, we, we have to you know, bring people together and, and do have those discussions on the individual intentions and, and making sure that we're moving in the right direction. Um, and for me, it, it's bringing, you know, it's bringing together the industry, the workers, the, um, the environmental groups, the communities, because it, it, this is about ensuring that also that local communities can have more access to how timber is, is harvested and, and managed in, in their own communities. And, and over the decades, uh, government has moved away from that, and, and local communities are saying they really want to see that happen. So I'm, I'm quite excited about that. And, and this is going to take a while. It, it's, I mean, staff are, are actually really excited about it, about moving forward with this. And, and we know that, you know, we, we have to get started, and, and uh, we are bringing people together. And, and I think probably one of the, the key ones, the key timelines is mm-hmm. what we're doing with old growth, because that's really critical to us. You know, it's, um, we're going to, we expect we're going to be able to announce additional deferrals this summer, which is really important. Mm-hmm. We've already deferred, you know, over 200,000 uh, hectares and that, that was done, you know, those initial nine hectares last summer, last September. But um, we, we know that we, uh, we, we need to move forward on this and, and we're, we're, we're going to do that. I have to ask you, since I have you here, how did you feel? You mentioned old growth there. How did you feel? Did you see that picture of that old, the big, huge tree on the truck last week that was going down the highway that kind of went viral? Like, what did you feel when you when you saw that? Didn't feel very good about it, that's for sure. Because you know, but then I, I looked at it. I thought, well, that that's been cut down for a while. But what I I did, you know, my immediate reaction was. When was that cut down? Why was it cut down? And, and then to know that um, with our new regulation that we brought in, it, w- it will protect trees like that. You know, we'll, we're protecting over, you know, a thousand over five hundred over a thousand five hundred groves with big iconic trees in it. And I just wanted to make sure that the regulation that was brought in last September would actually protect those trees now and, and, and into the future because that, that that's what's critical for us. You know, we. We know that uh, those ancient forests are just part of what makes BC so great, and and we owe it to future generations to preserve them. You know, Simi, I I say this because I really feel it. But I I have nine grandkids, you know, four kids, and and I I want my grandkids. I, the oldest is twenty, the youngest is is five, and. I want them to, if they want to, I want them to be able to work in the forest industry in a well-managed, sustainable forest industry if they choose. But I also want them to have the ability to walk in, in old forests to be able to see those iconic trees for, for years to come. And, and that's, I, I can't live with myself as a forest minister. I don't undertake this to make sure that we get this done. And listen, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. Thank you, Simi. Really appreciate it. This is Mornings with Simi. As we continue our coverage on the discovery in Kamloops, the residential school there of the unmarked burial site, we're continuing to try to get different voices, Indigenous voices, to share their thoughts on this and how we start the process of healing and and, and moving forward, how we can help, all help with that. And joining us this morning is Wade Grant, a member of the Musqueam Indian Band. Wade, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. What has this last week or so been like for you, just hearing all this and suddenly seeing this all in the news? 
Well, it you know gut wrenching as a father as well, father of two Indigenous children that uh, uh, have a grandmother that was a residential school survivor, just to open up a wound that's never going to be fully healed for Indigenous people across Canada. I'm lucky enough uh, that my parents never had to attend residential school, but I had many relatives attend the school uh, and actually attended that school in particular that survived, but uh, uh, drastically affected them throughout their lives. And you can see the intergenerational trauma uh, as I grew up with their children. And uh, it's just something that we all knew about, uh, but, uh, you know, having it uh, just confirmed is, is something that's going to affect us not, not only for, for this uh, this week, but for, for, for years to come. Do you think people, you know, across the country are finally paying attention to that intergenerational trauma? I, I would hope that this is a, an eye-opener, a wake-up call for, for our country, that uh, people can go out and, and have to educate themselves about the, the true history of, of Canada, because it was never taught in schools. It was... Uh, Never something that I learned. I know you and I both graduated from Point Grey Secondary School, and uh, we never learned that when we were in Socials 11. So true. You know, these are things that uh, we have to, to learn on our own, and it's incumbent upon, you know, uh, people to, to pick up the, the, a book or, or go to the Internet and learn a little bit more. And it's incumbent upon myself as well, to, as an Indigenous person, to, to help people learn and to, to, uh, to um, make sure that future generations understand and never forget the... Uh, the atrocities that happened to Indigenous people in Canada. What would you like to see happen here then moving forward? And I know it's tough because I know the First Nations in Kamloops would like a little time, right, to mourn and to, and to talk amongst themselves. But how can we help? What, what, what should happen here? Well, uh, just if, what I, there's so many, so many things that can happen. But to, first of all, for the government to implement all the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action that, that were, uh, were put forward a number of years ago. There's still a number that haven't been, uh, haven't been implemented. Uh, there needs to be more than just words of a prime minister standing on the floor of, the, of parliament saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry is just an, uh, an empty uh, apology without any action behind it. And for me, it all starts with education. It all starts with, uh, you know, your children all the way from kindergarten up to grade 12, learning about the true history of Canada instead of, uh, you know, just the, uh, a glorified version of, of what we think our country is. Our country does have warts. Our country does have things that we should be ashamed of, but also should learn from. So, you know, I think that the, uh, the starting is, is our education system, because that's where uh, we are really, uh, really become Canadians. And I think that's a, a place that uh, is uh, much needed for this type of education. Oh, I think you're so right on that. Listen, Wade, thank you for joining us and come back anytime. All right. Thanks, Jimmy. Thanks, Wade. It's Wade Grant, member of the Musqueam Indian Band. And we want to say here that when we talk about these stories, we have to remind you, anyone experiencing pain or distress as a result of their residential school experience can access a 24-hour toll-free and confidential National Indian Residential School crisis line. That number is one 925 you could email me, simi at cknw.com, and I can certainly pass that number on to you as well if you didn't get a chance to catch that. This is Mornings with Simi. When her book, The Vagina Bible, came out, she became famous for putting women's health at the forefront of the discussion. Now with her new book, The Menopause Manifesto, Dr. Jen Gunther is doing it again, talking about something that is common and yet 
doesn't get a lot of open and frank discussion. So once again, she is aiming to change that. And Dr. Jen Gunther joins us now. Good morning. Thanks for being back with us. Thank you so much for having me. So tell me, when did you decide that, you know what, next time I am tackling menopause? Well, it was actually on book tour for the Vagina Bible because every single stock, there were questions about menopause. People wanted to ask about menopause and not necessarily as it related to the vulva or vagina. And people were really craving the information. And someone told me that menopause felt lonely. And that really stuck with me. And uh, and so I figured that was the next subject to tackle. And why is it, do you think, like, you, know, you think about all the women who have gone through this, huge numbers of women, why do, why do we do it alone? Why aren't there more discussions about this? Why isn't this more open? Well, I mean, I, I think the one-word answer is the patriarchy, right? Um, not that everybody really wants to hear that. But, you know, there's been this systemic erasure of women as they age from our society. And we have a long history of treating women as they age as being toxic or inferior. And that is reflected in medicine and women have had trouble accessing health care. And so I think it's really a multifactorial thing that all boils down to, you know, how society looks at women. And do you think women are told like, okay, just be quiet, just hang, it'll hang in there and it'll be over soon? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a variety of things. I think they're dismissed with platitudes just like that, like as in, you know, oh, it's not that bad or, you know, it, you know you'll know, you get through it or we don't have any treatments or the treatments are too scary or too, you know, are too dangerous. And so there's a lot of just misinformation. Okay, so what did you, what was the message you wanted to put out there with the book then? If they take, what do you want them to take away from this? Well, I think there's two takeaways. So one is menopause isn't a disease. It's not a sign of irrelevance. You know, it's been painted as a disease by the patriarchy, but really it's a planned end of ovarian function. The other thing that I want people to know is that, you know, knowing how your body works and knowing how menopause works will help you navigate all of the treatments that are out there and you don't have to suffer that there are many excellent therapies. Are women sometimes, do you think, too afraid to go to the doctor and talk about these therapies? Like what stops us from asking for that help? I think there's a few things. I think, first of all, people erroneously think there's no safe treatments because of a lot of what they hear in the media. All they hear are about risks. They hear very rare risks amplified. And so that makes people think, well, there's no point going because it's a risky therapy. I think a lot of doctors erroneously think the therapy is risky. And, and so I think, and also, you know, if you've been dismissed or you feel that what's happening to you is just well, normal and, and everybody you know has sucked it up, then, you know, that, you know, that probably leads people to just not think it's worth it. And if you've been dismissed before by the doctor, maybe with your painful periods or other issues, then it's going to be harder for you to bring something else up. So what do you think women should ask then? If we go to the doctor, we want to talk about this, where should we start? Well, I think it depends what's going on. And so that might vary, you know, person to person. So I usually tell people to make a list of the symptoms that are bothering you. And, um, and sometimes this can be a lot and you may not be able to address all of those in the first visit. And, but you want to let your doctor know about all the symptoms because the ones that bother you the most might not actually be the ones that are the most medically concerning. So you want to make sure your doctor has an option to, has the opportunity to listen to all of them. Then the other thing is to ask about the health screenings that you need, because there are some specific health screenings for cholesterol, for diabetes, for bone health. So you can make sure that you're up to date on those, because we always talk about breast screening, but we never seem to talk about these other important screenings. 
Yeah, that is so true there. Oh, I also wanted to ask you about your podcast that you've got, right? Yes. Body Stuff with Dr. Jen Gunter, which just started, actually. Uh, and this is a great idea. You want to talk about, like, medical myths out there, in particular for women? Well, it's no, it's geared to everybody, really. It's, um, it's my sort of hypothesis or my theory is that the reason why people are so vulnerable to myths and misinformation is that they don't have the general knowledge they should about how the human body works. And so this is kind of like mini medical school, Jen Gunter style, where we tackle a different organ system each episode and sort of raise people's knowledge about that organ system. And then also look at maybe forces in society or history that affect how you think about your body to explain how we might get to these medical myths. And so you're educated so you can be a myth buster yourself. Oh, I love that. Okay, it's called Body Stuff with Dr. Jen Gunter, but your latest book is The Menopause Manifesto. So are there treatments then, Dr. Gunter, for women if they're dealing with really tough symptoms with menopause? Yeah, there are a lot of treatments. And so, you know, whether it's vaginal dryness or hot flushes or um, depression, uh, there are, you know, really a variety of different treatments to offer. Menopausal hormone therapy for women under the age of 60 who are within 10 years of their last menstrual period is a very safe therapy that can help a lot of people who are suffering. You know, the risks of breast cancer have been so overblown by the media, and I don't want to dismiss the importance of breast cancer, but the way that it's often portrayed, women think, oh, my gosh, there's like half the women are going to get it. But actually, you know, the, the odds in the first five years are six per 10,000 per year. So, you know, you, you put that in perspective. There's many other things that we do or medications that we take that, you know, are are riskier than that and people think it's acceptable. I was thinking about that in terms of the birth control pill too, right? All this discussion about blood clots with vaccines and a lot of women are pointing out, wait a minute, the risk is higher with birth control pills and we don't talk about that. Right, because, you know, we we think that, um, you know, that control, controlling fertility serves the patriarchy, but helping women in menopause doesn't. That is so fascinating there. So what kind of reaction have you gotten though? Because like I know you, you, when you did the Vagina Bible, right, you were like, let's talk about this. If people are uncomfortable, too bad. What kind of reaction have you gotten with the Menopause Manifesto? You know, it's been, you know, universally really well received so far. I mean, I've had so many, um, you know, women reach out to tell me that, you know, this has been just mind-blowing for them, that they knew nothing about what was happening to their body. How is that possible? Imagine if people knew nothing about pregnancy. Imagine if you woke up one day and you were pregnant and you had no idea that your belly was going to get bigger or no idea that it was going to have to come out of you, right? And you're like, wait a minute, you're going to cut it out. (laughs) It's going to come out of my vagina. Those are like my two options. Right. Like, I don't like what? So that's how women are going into menopause with with less information than that. They like they know nothing because of this culture of silence. And you know what? There are many wonderful Canadian doctors. But when they're given 15 minutes or 10 minutes to see someone, how can they possibly talk about something that affects every organ system that, you know, is that's like asking someone to say, okay, well, you're going to see an 18 year old and you get 10 minutes to tell them everything for the rest of their adulthood. You are so right. Genius. Absolutely right. Uh, Dr. Gunter, thank you for being with us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. We appreciate that. That's Dr. Jen Gunter. She's an obstetrician, gynecologist, author, of course, of the Vagina Bible, but now the Menopause Manifesto, 
women out there, you need to read this. And I thought, you know, this might, are we going to make some people uncomfortable talking about this? But I thought, who cares? You know what? We talk about erectile dysfunction all the time. Why not talk about menopause? So yes, if you read her latest book, you've heard of her, check out the new one. It's called The Menopause Manifesto. This is Mornings with Simi. Okay, it is National Disabilities Week. What does that mean? Well, it means that it's a time for us all to take a hard look at how we can remove barriers for people who experience any kind of impairment, visible or invisible. It's also time to shine a light on some of the incredible things that are happening out there in our communities. And our Raji Sohal has more on that this morning. Hi, Raji. Hi, Simi. Yeah, you know, when most people think dance performance, they think of ballerinas leaping across a stage. Um, But not a lot of people think of wheelchairs. And a Vancouver dance company called All Bodies Dance is trying to change that. They're made up of dancers with all different kinds of disabilities. Some are in wheelchairs, some have other impairments. And they're dancing together with just joy beaming from them. Harmony Rose is a choreographer, a facilitator, and disabled dancer with All Bodies Dance. Here's her story. I was told my whole entire life that as soon as I used a wheelchair, my life was over. Harmony Rose was born with spina bifida. She was an active kid and rode horses until in her early 20s, complications caught up with her and left her in a wheelchair. And then a mentor persuaded her to join in a dance performance. And I was like, I'm not going to like it. But when I got into the classroom and they were like, okay, we're going to do a little bit of a warm up. So the first activity is just move around the room in any way that feels good to you. And that one directive, that one like offering blew my mind because that was the first time using my wheelchair, manual wheelchair, it wasn't a great manual wheelchair, that it wasn't just about going from point A to point B. It was about me moving the way that I needed to move. And that's how I got into dance because the idea of that my body was still my body and that I could be creative and artistic and achieve anything that I wanted to achieve basically made it so that I could live with disability and made it so that I could thrive with the disability. Soon she found her own calling as a choreographer, a disabled dancer, and a facilitator who'd help other people with disabilities learn to love dancing. Being able to create and do that in a way that is recognized and respected in the community is sort of life-changing, life-altering. I can always reach deeper into myself and try to connect to things and process things in a way that I can't do by just talking about it. I can actually like move it and move it out of my body and process all of the different things that have gone on in my life. All Bodies Dance is for people who don't fit into boxes. It's not dance as therapy, not dance as recreation. It's just dance for people who happen to have disabilities. There's just something, something special about connecting to other people who have disabilities. Oh, that is just fantastic. Raji, what a great story. Yeah, Sammy, and the videos of All Bodies Dance, are, their performances are just incredible. They're super inspiring. And I know you're not a dancer. You don't do dance classes and whatnot. I only came to dance in my adult life, and I just 
love the idea that anyone, everyone can do it. Music is a universal language and no matter anyone's ability, there's a way to participate. Yeah. And, um, Harmony Rose, um, so she's, she's herself in a wheelchair. She spent half of her life now in a wheelchair and I don't have a disability, but I wanted, I want to become a better ally for those who do. So I asked Harmony what kind of support she wants from people who don't have a disability. Ooh, it's a tough one because it's not about like pushing you up a hill. If you see that it's a struggle, it's more making sure if they're going to ask you, they look you in the eye and ask you if you want help. But it's also about recognizing the different rules that are in place for people with disabilities. Like, but we live in a society where people with disabilities are not um, considered that important because it's not shown in the way we build our structures and our society. So any way that they can support and offer respect and also offer that respect toward independence. We want to be independent. We don't want to be handheld, but society needs to start making changes in order for that to happen. Okay. That is really good advice there for people. Look, we all need to think about this. Yeah. Simi, she made the point to me also that people in wheelchairs, a good chunk of their leisure time is spent making complaints, making complaints when they see that something is not accessible. And I thought, hey, that's like one way that we can help people who don't have disabilities can help um, relieve that burden a little bit. So if you notice that something's wrong with accessibility, like, you know, take the time to send an email or talk to um, whomever is responsible about making that more accessible. It's things like, you know, even trying to get on a bus, she told me uh, that she still has to face daily these obstacles of people trying to get in front of her or people not getting out of the wheelchair spot. Um, So it's, you know, some of it's just really common sense, actually. That we can all do, you know, and I'm just thinking about this email I got this morning from Chris, who Chris said that his wife is disabled, but she wanted to go to Willowbrook to buy some new clothes and that Mm -hmm. Willowbrook had wheelchair rentals but it's been suspended because of COVID. So he he was saying like, how can my wife go there and and shop and do what everybody else does? Like, can we not, we, we do all this other stuff for COVID, right? To cope with it. Can we not clean off the wheelchairs and allow people to come to the mall? Yeah. And allow for people with disabilities to fully participate in society. That's such a good point. And it brings it back to the fact that this is a human rights issue, right? Yeah. People with disabilities deserve the same rights to access that the rest of us do. And a huge chunk of our population is people with disabilities. It's as high as 25%. So yeah, it's about time that people don't have disabilities start doing some advocacy work on their behalf too. You got it. Raji, thank you. Thanks, Simi. That is our Raji Soho. Now, still ahead for us, we're going to talk about growing food for us here in BC so that we can be self-sustainable. There's a way to do that. And we'll tell you about this new study coming up after the news. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about food security. It's become a hot topic of study, in particular during the pandemic, as in, can we produce enough food for ourselves right here in BC? Now, that's something a new study took a look at from Kwantlen Polytechnic University. And for more on that, Dr. Kent Mullenix joins us, Director of the Institute for Sustainable Food Systems. Thanks for joining us this morning. Oh, good morning, Simi. Now, tell me, what is it that you looked at in the study? In the in this study, which is the second uh, study we conducted uh, looking at similar uh, food system outcomes, we examined the capacity 
of a bioregion, in this case the Okanagan bioregion, to uh, produce enough food to feed the population into the future, uh, 2050 in fact. And we also looked at the uh, economic outcomes of substantially re-regionalizing a food system to feed the population and uh, the implications for uh, land availability and land use. So in, in essence, we uh, looked at the, uh, the bioregion's capacity to be food self-reliant and what the economic job creation, uh, business creation potentials of regionalizing the food system could be. Right. So are you saying we're not doing some of these things right now? We're not. We're not, uh, despite the uh, great interest in local food and, and regional food systems, we're not, we're not doing um, this. We are dependent uh, almost entirely on a globalized food system that is uh, run and operated primarily for the benefit of a handful of transnational corporations. Our, our uh our local regional food systems are paltry in comparison to the transnational food systems. We get uh, over 80% of fresh fruits and vegetables from California and Mexico. Right, but we can grow a lot of that in the Okanagan, but how do we make that happen? <laughs> well, uh, we can. And, and in fact, in our study, we, we determined that the uh, Okanagan bioregion uh, serving a population, uh, the population expected in the year 2050 could be essentially about 75 percent, 70% food self-reliant. Uh, a, a, a theoretical maximum food self-reliance is only about 77% because we eat a lot of food out of season and, and a lot of tropical fruits and etc. Uh, so that they could be substantially food self-reliant, uh, but what it's going to take is the creation through policy and regulation of an economic environment that encourages the development of local regional food system businesses from the farm to the table. Uh, most significantly, it's going to require, certainly it's going to require uh, the, the preparation and support for uh, farmers who are focused on the local regional food system but it's also going to take uh, investment in the development of the post-production sector. Right. So, so uh, aggregation, uh, sorting, cleaning, processing, uh, distribution. Uh, th that is the linchpin to the development of regional food systems. Right, because we're growing a lot of this. So you're saying rather than, you know, just waiting and, and buying it all just, you know, when it's fresh, we can save some of this, freeze it, process it for later in the year. That's exactly right. And that's exactly what we should be doing if we want to maximize our food self-reliance capacity and if we want to maximize the economic benefit to our communities. Right. You're talking about the Okanagan here, though, but can we extrapolate and say more, this could be 4 BC? Absolutely. So, so our work focuses on bioregional food systems. So, so we, we conducted a similar study, as I said, for Southwest BC, 
the the bioregion that Mexico Vancouver is in, and we uh, established that a regionalized food system in Southwest BC would would dramatically increase food self reliance and dramatically increase the economic contributions to our communities. Uh, we have now. Uh, applied our methodology to the Okanagan bioregion and demonstrated the, uh, illustrated the same thing. Uh, and our uh, and, and we do this work focused on bioregions just because we believe that the human economy and our food system should be linked to the uh, ecologies of the places that we live. But we also uh, hope and that we can conduct similar studies for all of BC's bioregions and then, and then figure out how these bioregions can best relate to one another to bring forth uh, su- substantial provincial food self-reliance and uh, business and job uh, creation and, and economic development opportunities. Right, but what you're well, talking absolutely. what you're talking about is having the provincial government say we want BC to be like food sustainable on its own. That, that uh, essentially yes. I don't know that we'll, we'll ever uh, be completely food uh, self reliant, but I I because of the way we eat and. But I know that we can be substantially more right. food self-reliant. And in, in the pursuit of that and the achievement of that, we will benefit economically and in terms of social capital and oper- business opportunity, we will benefit our province immensely. So you're saying that because of the way we eat, meaning we like to have grapes in the middle of winter or, you know, we like to have, we're used to having anything we want, any type of produce we want all year round. That's exactly right. Theoretically, uh, based on our calculations, the the highest level of food self-reliance that any bioregion could achieve is about 77%. And the only way to increase that level of food self-reliance, uh, regardless of, of uh, resources, is to change the way we eat. So we got to quit eating strawberries, fresh strawberries in January, and and eat uh, frozen or 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 canned strawberries in uh, frozen strawberries in in January. We've got to quit eating mangoes. It's and 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 in the winter or any time and eat locally produced fruits. So, so, so about 77% is, is the theoretical maximum food self-reliance level if we, if we calculate it based on how we eat now. Right. That's a big, that's a big ask, I think, for people, right? Like, although I tend to find that if you want to eat strawberries in January, they're not going to taste as good as if you buy them from locally here in the summertime. Well, I sure agree. And, and, uh, you know, uh, one of, one of the reasons to contemplate, uh, changing one's diet in these ways is that we, we are obligated to figure out how the human economy can, uh, move us substantially toward sustainability. And we, we can't keep putting pressure on mother earth the way that we do now. 
And, and so there are a lot of things in the way we go about our, our everyday lives that we're right. going to need to rethink. And, and absolutely, we all eat three times a day and then some, and it puts immense uh, pressure on the environment and ecological processes. And uh, uh, when, we, when we bring the food economy back home, which it formerly was, then, then we're, we're going to own our relationship with uh, food and with uh, environmental impacts and with, uh, uh, with an impact right. uh, that it has on the community. And, and this is an important point. Wow, that is some fascinating stuff there. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Well, it's my pleasure, and thanks for your interest in in, uh, this this topic and and our work. Well, I love talking about it. That's Dr. Kent Mullinex, who's the director of the Institute for Sustainable Food Systems at Kwantlen Polytechnic University. They've recently done some work on bioregional food sustainability and says, you know what, here in BC, it is is possible for us to be uh, very um, food sustainable, as in growing enough food to potentially feed us, provided we change some things about our eating habits, right? We have grown awfully used to having all sorts of fruits and vegetables all year round. And that shouldn't necessarily be the case if we're eating as locally as possible. Find a way in, send me at cknw.com.